Plus. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock a roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Chris Christofferson, one of country music's greatest songwriters. Chris was also a trained army ranger and a Rhodes Scholar in literature. He landed a helicopter on Johnny Cash's lawn to hand-deliver the demo of Sunday Morning Coming Down to the Man in Black. He won a Golden Globe for co-starring with Barbara Streisand and told Toby Keith to shut the fuck up at Willie Nelson's birthday concert, allegedly. But this is not about Chris. This is about Rita Coolidge, one of the most in-demand backing vocalists on L.A.'s thriving late 60s rock scene before she met the country outlaw. A half-Cherokee girl from Tennessee who was robbed of co-writing credits on two massive hits, who tagged along on tour with Christofferson before platinum success put her name above his on the marquee the very next year. This story is about a girl.
The Coolidge family were driving home from a day trip running errands in Nashville. 13-year-old Rita sang along with the country music playing on the radio. She was always singing. Her mother said she could sing before she could walk. She was in the front seat, in the middle, with the best access to the radio. If she didn't like a song, she'd spin the knob and find another. In Nashville, the airwaves were full of music, the way the air gets saturated before a storm. She was so caught up in the music that she didn't even see the other car. It careened across the median and hit the Coolidge's car head on. Her father's forehead smacked into the steering wheel, knocking him out, and the crunch of the front end broke her mother's legs. Rita went flying through the windshield, face first. She landed out in front of the car in a heap, blood pouring from gashes on her face. Her mother struggled to free herself from the ruined vehicle. As she dragged herself across the ground to her injured daughter, she cried out for help, worried no one was within earshot. A man came out of the woods. All Rita would remember about him was his dark hair and his striped pants. Without a word, he went to the car and got a rag from the back seat. He held it against Rita's face to slow the bleeding. He waited with her until the ambulance came and disappeared as the paramedics loaded Rita into the back. The Coolidge's ran ads in the Nashville Daily Paper asking if anyone knew him, but they never identified the man who saved their daughter's life. At the hospital, surgeons spent six hours stitching together Rita's face. Delirious with pain and fear, the girl told them to just put a Band-Aid on it and send her home. She had a date the next night, a double with her school friend, Brenda Lee. Brenda was already something of a country star, a child singer with a belting voice and a string of local hits. She'd go on to be the fourth biggest chart topper of the 60s, behind only Elvis, the Beatles, and Ray Charles. The double date was all Rita had thought about or talked about for weeks, and now it was ruined. It was months before she got back to school. Her friends all assured her she looked fine, that they couldn't tell the difference. But one night, at a slumber party, she found a note the other girls were passing around. Rita is a teenage Frankenstein. After she graduated, Rita gravitated to Memphis. If Nashville was the heart of country, Memphis was the heart of just about everything else. For a city in the South, the Memphis music scene was remarkably integrated, if only in one direction. White musicians could get work backing up bigger Black acts, though fewer Black musicians could be seen behind white stars. But some bands, like Booker T and the MGs, the house band at Stax Records, were mixed race. And Rita, working as a backup singer, moved with ease through the worlds of Black and white artists, an ability she attributed to her Cherokee blood. One night, a friend brought her to see Ike and Tina Turner at a club called the Rosewood that served mostly Black clientele. Ike and Tina put on an amazing show. Tina never did anything less. But there was a sharp energy between them, a palpable tension. Rita's friend brought her backstage to meet Tina after the show. The star affirmed that the show had been off. Ike was having a bad night. When Rita asked what a bad night meant for Ike Turner, Tina took off her wig and showed the young singer a scar that ran from the front to the back of her scalp. 
where Ike had split her head open. This is what he does, Tina coolly said. Rita tucked that look away in the back of her mind. Tina Turner's cold resolve that this is what some men did. It would come in handy later, if a little too late. Rita was dating a guy called Don Nix, a songwriter and producer who worked with Booker T's band, among many others in the Memphis scene. He was recording a band from L.A., fronted by Delaney and Bonnie Bramlett at Stax. Among the band members was Leon Russell, already a successful session musician and songwriter. Upon meeting Rita, Leon was smitten enough to ask Don Nix to let him know if they ever broke up. Surprisingly, when they did break it off, Don did indeed tell Leon, who came back out to Memphis for Rita. They started up a relationship and smitten herself with Leon and the whole scene around Delaney and Bonnie. Rita traveled with him back to Los Angeles, land of opportunity and record labels. Rita had cut a song while she was in Memphis, a slow burner called Turn Around and Love Me, and it was a big hit by the time she got to L.A., blaring out of record stores and radios. This proved to be a minor league victory, enough to get her steady work as a backing vocalist, but not enough for a solo contract from a major label. The brash confidence that made Leon Russell so appealing seemed to wilt under the California sun, and his relationship with Rita fizzled out as well. But they remained friends and bandmates. Rita began dating Delaney and Bonnie's drummer, Jim Gordon, regarded as the best session drummer in L.A. Charming but edgy, with an appetite for coke, Gordon lived with Rita in a house in the Hollywood Hills. The band struggled for a mainstream breakthrough, but they were getting respect from other artists. Eric Clapton, enamored with the sounds of real Southerners playing the blues, brought them out on tour, opening for his short-lived supergroup, Blind Faith. After Clapton left that band, he went out on tour as part of Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, although this sometimes led to confusion, with audiences in the UK chanting, Clapton! Clap ton, as the headliners tried to get through their set. After a few recording sessions in Los Angeles, Clapton brought the whole band over to London to live on his estate and help record his self-titled solo debut. At the same time, a subset of the band, including Rita's boyfriend Jim Gordon, were recording another album with Clapton, striving for a level of post-fame anonymity under the moniker Derek and the Dominoes. The album was shot through with pining for Patty Boyd, the wife of Clapton's friend George Harrison, and its title track would feature an iconic but uncredited contribution from Rita Coolidge. But we'll get back to that. Rita's stay at Clapton's estate with Jim would be one of the happiest stretches of her early career. The one dark note came when someone showed up with a batch of orange sunshine acid, once the gold standard of West Coast LSD now in short supply after a massive bust in early 1969. Rita was lukewarm on tripping, but felt that she was in a safe environment and decided to partake. When Delaney and Bonnie arrived from Los Angeles in the middle of her trip, she was delighted to see that Bonnie, who she considered a close friend, had taken the form of a brightly colored bird. She turned to Jim to tell him about it, but Jim Gordon had become a dark raptor 
a menacing bird of prey. She saw a darkness inside him she'd never perceived, a kind of nothing behind his eyes. She didn't say anything about it to anyone and wrote it off as a flash of a bad trip on an otherwise wonderful day. But after that, while completely sober, she'd catch that shadow in him from time to time and flinch away. Fueled by cocaine and fractured by too much acid, Jim Gordon's shadow self finally showed itself to Rita while they were out with Joe Cocker on a grueling U.S. tour, a legendary live show dubbed the Mad Dogs and Englishmen Tour. Cocker was huge following his acclaimed appearance at the Woodstock Festival, but when he arrived in Los Angeles in March 1970, it was with the expectation of some downtime. But his management, without his knowledge, had booked him for 52 upcoming shows and had not even arranged for a band. Cocker had one week before he needed to be in Detroit to launch the tour. He turned to Leon Russell, who recruited the Delaney and Bonnie band, including Rita and Jim, to back the singer. While they hadn't bothered about a band, Cocker's managers had hired a camera crew to further capitalize on the box office success of the Woodstock film. The pace of the shows and the levels of cocaine and alcohol consumption proved unsustainable for all parties involved, not to mention the sex. Rita walked into the hotel lobby one morning and saw half the band lined up to load into vans. There wasn't any rehearsal or show on the schedule until later, so she asked someone what was going on. We've all got VD, he told her. We're headed down to the clinic for shots. Any given night, some of the hotel rooms were thrumming with orgies, while others hosted tour mates chilling out with a joint and late-night television. Rita tended toward the latter, and one night she and Jim were curled up together watching Johnny Carson's Tonight Show with friends when he said he had something to talk to her about. She followed him into the hotel hallway. Something in her said he was going to propose. Things had been going well, and that shadow inside him that had been exposed by the sunshine acid was mostly forgotten. She stood, waiting to see if he was going to ask, wondering what she would say if he did, when Jim punched her in the face, throwing her back against the wall. He left her there, unconscious, and went back to watching Carson as if nothing had happened. When Rita came to, she thought about Tina Turner's scar and her cold look when she told Rita, this is what he does. The next night, Rita took her solo turn on stage singing Superstar with a black eye, her eyeball rimmed in red. She didn't file charges, but she did get a restraining order. For the rest of the tour, the band acted as a human shield between Rita and Jim, getting her to the gigs and back to her room under protection, making sure she was never alone. The tour finished out in Santa Monica, and the word was someone from A&M Records was in the audience. Leon, effectively the music director for the tour, expanded Rita's solo spot. Her black eye still prominent, she gave her strongest performance of the tour. Backstage after the show, the man from A&M offered Rita her first record deal. Jim Gordon spent the rest of the 70s recording iconic drum performances between bouts of undiagnosed schizophrenia, 
aggravated by his cocaine use. On June 3, 1983, the same year Rita recorded All Time High, the theme song for the James Bond film Octopussy, Gordon obeyed the voices in his head and attacked his mother with a hammer and then murdered her with a butcher knife. But as the 1970s started, Rita Coolidge found herself with a major label deal and a front row seat for the twilight of the California rock scene. Rita Coolidge was in a photography studio having promo shots taken when a familiar voice came over the radio. She had just finished recording her self-titled solo debut. The liner notes were a murderer's row of California talent, Leon Russell and Bobby Womack, her brother-in-law, Booker T. Jones, and members of his legendary Memphis backing band, Stephen Stills, formerly of the Buffalo Springfield, who had just formed his own supergroup with Graham Nash of the Hollies and David Crosby of the Birds. The voice Rita heard on the radio was that of Eric Clapton, screaming in desperation for a woman named Layla, although Rita knew the real object of his affection was named Patty, a well-known model and the wife of Beatle George Harrison. Rita's abusive ex-boyfriend, Jim Gordon, powered the song with thundering drums. It built until it was almost unbearable, and then suddenly took a deep breath and transformed into a long piano outro that felt like a release. It also sounded very familiar. Not a surprise, because Rita Coolidge wrote it. It was part of a song she'd co-written with Jim while they were together. Titled Time, the full song would only be released by her sister Priscilla and Priscilla's husband Booker T. Jones a few years later. But that piano piece? That was Rita's. Rita hoofed it down to the record store and picked up a copy of the album, which Clapton had issued under the name Derek and the Dominoes. Flipping it over, she looked at the credits, which declared the song was co-written by Clapton and Gordon. No mention of Rita. She called Clapton, who remembered Jim Gordon bringing him a demo of the song, but didn't seem to recall Rita and Jim playing it for him at the studio one day. It was no secret Jim had punched Rita during the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. She'd worn the bruise for weeks, but it hadn't stopped people, including Clapton, from working with him. She contacted Clapton's manager, Robert Stigwood, who barely gave her the time of day. You're a girl singer, he said. What are you going to do? Rita Coolidge started off 1971 with an iconic rock hit, She just didn't get any credit for it. It would happen to her twice that year. The second one she heard on the radio months later. It had been her signature song on the Mad Dogs tour, her solo spotlight. It was a torch song about a girl who falls in love with a rock star. She and Bonnie Bramlett had written it together, back in the golden days when Delaney and Bonnie and friends felt like a family. In the end, Leon Russell had huddled with Bonnie's husband, Delaney Bramlett, in another room and put a polish on the song. But the guts of it belonged to Rita and Bonnie. So it was a surprise when she heard Superstar oozing out of the speakers of her green Volkswagen, sung by Karen Carpenter, whose parking space at A&M was right next to Rita's. 
Karen Carpenter and the record label hadn't known any better. Even though Rita's performance of Superstar helped land her a record deal, the song was sold to A&M as a composition by Bonnie Bramlett and Leon Russell. Leon at least took Rita's call. He said Delaney and Bonnie told him it was Bonnie's song and asked him to help her finish it. Bonnie didn't pick up the phone. She and Rita had barely spoken since Rita witnessed Delaney viciously beating Bonnie for coming home late from a night on the town with Rita. Rita thought at the time her friend was trying to protect Rita from Delaney's violence, but there was no good explanation for why she would have stolen the song they wrote together. Taken together, the two snubs felt like they drew the curtain on the previous year of Rita's life, but she was running with a different crowd these days. While the circle around Delaney and Bonnie had collapsed under the weight of cocaine and violence, the Los Angeles folk rock scene still had a patina of 60s family feel. Rita was invited to join a backing chorus to record Stephen Stills' Love the One You're With, a sweet-sounding ode to free love that hundreds of dudes in the 70s would quote to justify their infidelities. The sing-along included Rita's sister Priscilla, John Sebastian of The Lovin' Spoonful, an uncredited Mama Cass Elliot, and Stills' bandmates, Graham Nash and David Crosby. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were on a hiatus after their massive hit with Deja Vu, but the three original members remained tight and continued to play shows around L.A. Nash was staying with Stills in Laurel Canyon during the recording sessions, and the trio was playing the next night. David Crosby didn't like Rita. He once accused her of slipping quaaludes into a pot of beans she cooked for the band at Stephen's house, although Crosby was somehow the only one to feel the effects. In Rita's defense, David Crosby is not the most reliable narrator of stories from this period, especially where drugs are involved. Graham Nash liked her quite a bit and chatted her up after the recording session. He asked if she wanted to come to the show the next night and gave her the number at Stephen's house to call and set it up the next day. When she did, Stephen answered. Um, Graham's not here, he said. He sounded shady. He says he can't bring you to the show tonight, but I can come pick you up. Rita was rightly skeptical, but she wanted to see the band, so she let Stephen come by her house to get her. As they raced to the show, he dropped the most 70s pickup line in history on her. So, he said, what's your sign? It was instantly apparent to Rita that Stephen was attempting to love the one he was with, but she was not interested. Still, she answered, Taurus. Stephen's eyes went wide. When's your birthday, he asked. May 1st, Rita said. Stephen Stills pulled over the car. He looked deeply into Rita's eyes. The love of my life was born on May 1st, he said. He wasn't talking about Rita. Everyone on the scene knew that Stephen had been deeply in love with Judy Collins. He wrote sweet Judy blue eyes for her. Part of the bond between Stephen and Graham was that they'd broken up with their folk singing girlfriends around the time. Stephen and Judy Collins, Graham and Joni Mitchell. After an uncomfortable moment, he pulled the car back onto the road and took them to the show. 
Graham Nash was obviously pissed to see Rita showing up with Stephen. But from Rita's point of view, she'd done nothing wrong. He was the one who stood her up. She went out with Stephen a few more times. He even wrote a song about her, which it turns out is a thing Stephen Stills did in order to flirt. But after a few weeks of awkward dates with Stephen and the cold shoulder from Graham, she got around to calling Graham Nash to set the record straight. It turned out that Stephen had told his friend Graham that Rita called to stand him up right after he told Rita the opposite. Graham and Rita started seeing each other on the sly, spending most of their time around Rita's house, with Graham writing half of his solo debut, Songs for Beginners, on the same piano where Rita had unwittingly composed the piano outro for Layla. After a little time went by, Graham decided they should come clean. They drove out to Stephen's house in the canyon and found him by the pool with a group of people. Stephen was put on his heels seeing the couple arrive together. Graham approached, cautious. We have something we want to talk to you about, he said. Stephen Stills didn't wait to hear it. He lunged at Graham Nash, knocking him down and pummeling him on the pool deck. Partygoers had to pull him off. Graham and Stephen didn't speak to each other for years after. David Crosby maintained that Rita Coolidge was the reason the band broke up. Rita and Graham stayed together another year before distance and touring pulled them apart. He wanted to marry, and she didn't. She wasn't opposed to marriage on principle. She just figured when the one you were going to marry came along, you'd know. She was about to find out in the most unlikely place, waiting in line at LAX. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Musicland Stories. Join us for a new aquatic season, exploring the sonic adventures of sea creatures from ghost crabs to octopodies, earworms to mazes of coral reef. Listen to the newest season of Musicland Stories, airing weekly every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon, aquatic adventurers. Captain out. Chris Christofferson had his first hit on his hands, just not the way he wanted. He'd given me and Bobby McGee to Janis Joplin to record for her album, Pearl. The pair were dating, whatever that meant for two free spirits like Chris and Janis. But Chris wasn't even aware Janis cut the track. The day after Janis died, a producer at Columbia called Chris into the offices. I've got something to play you, he said. When Janice's voice came out of the speaker, Chris had to leave the room. All of 1971, she haunted him through the radio. Chris was selling songs and scraping together other writing gigs in addition to touring. In November of that year, he was headed from Los Angeles to Nashville via Memphis 
to do his first cover story for Look Magazine, a sort of poor man's version of Life Magazine. Chris Christofferson never made it to Nashville, and Look Magazine folded before the end of the year. Rita Coolidge was riding the wave of publicity around her first solo album. She was being touted as the next big thing, alongside names like Linda Ronstadt and Bonnie Raitt. She was headed from Los Angeles to Memphis to rehearse a backing band for her tour. Rita's manager tried to introduce the two of them, but Chris seemed distant. He wasn't rude, but he didn't seem interested in talking. When Rita got on the plane, she saw him seated in the back, and he beckoned her over. I've got a seat for you, he said. They started talking and didn't stop. When the plane landed in Memphis, Chris decided to get off rather than continue to Nashville. I'm coming with you, he told her. The two of them would spend the rest of the decade side by side, for better and more often for worse. Rita's album wasn't selling well, and neither were tickets for the tour. It turned out Chris was booked on the same circuit, one night ahead of her. As venues canceled her gigs, she'd hop back in the bus and rush to the next city to see Chris's show. It was entirely different from the show she was used to on the Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour. Chris's shows were intimate. He drew the audience to him. He drew Rita as well. At first, the two were inseparable. Chris was cast in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And when director Sam Peckinpah tried to get Rita off the set, Chris said, if she goes, I go. Peckinpah cast Rita as Chris's love interest, a bit part that didn't ask her to do much more than lie in bed with him. His movie career was picking up steam while her records were still landing in the middle of the charts. Chris had never bothered to get a divorce from his first wife, although they'd been separated for years. And once he and Rita got together, he got the paperwork moving again. When he came through in 1973, he and Rita got married. Rita was four months pregnant. It didn't get off to a great start. Claiming it was bad luck for the groom to see the bride before the wedding, Chris stayed the night at the house of Roger McGuinn of the birds. At one the next afternoon, Rita was at the wedding, sweating in the August sun, with no groom in sight. Chris stumbled in a half hour late. It wasn't clear if he and McGuinn had been drinking all morning or if he was still drunk from the night before. Friends got some coffee into Chris and a Valium into Rita, and the wedding went on as planned. The couple loaded into the back of a car with cans tied to the back bumper, and Rita realized they hadn't planned for where they were going to spend their wedding night. She assumed they'd head to a hotel, but Chris gave the driver directions back to Roger McGuinn's place. Rita fell asleep alone in the guest room while Chris and Roger picked up where they left off. The marriage was bumpy from the outset. Rita didn't like Chris dropping by the studio when she was working, which he did regularly, because it disrupted the whole session. People stopped what they were doing so they could go talk to him. For his part, Chris didn't like Rita coming on set when he was filming, partially because he might be carrying on with one of the women on set. But it was no secret to Rita. She knew the man she'd married and knew that while he might wander, he'd always swagger back. 
She came to hate being on Chris's film sets, though, where she felt like she was being whispered about, the object of pity and jokes. Over time, she just stopped going. She let that be his world. Chris was in England, filming the sailor who fell from grace with the sea, and he'd brought Rita and their new daughter along with him. At the end of one day's shoot, Playboy magazine had arranged to shoot a feature that would include Chris and co-star Sarah Miles staging some of the steamier scenes from the movie. Chris Christopherson was a drinker, and he'd come to know his limits, even if those limits were beyond what anyone else might call reasonable. But he was a beer and whiskey man. He didn't know how to clock himself when it came to wine. And wine was all that was on offer at the Playboy shoot. He got home late that night, drunker than Rita had ever seen him, staggering down the hall of the little cottage in which the studio had set them up. Leaving their daughter in her high chair for a minute, Rita came up behind him to help him to bed. Chris whirled around and punched her in the eye. He stumbled the rest of the way to the bedroom, slammed the door, and passed out. He didn't remember hitting her, didn't remember the photo shoot or how he got home. Rita's mind whirled. She thought about Tina Turner again and Jim Gordon. She told herself it only happened because he'd been drunk. But was that really a good excuse? A few months later, the Playboy issue came out. Rita found out when Chris's mother called her and said, Did you see what he's done now? Rita had someone run out and get her a copy. In what the cover touted as the sexiest star pictorial ever, there was page after page of what Rita could only think of as pornography. Her husband performing sexual acts on another woman in the pages of a national magazine. Rita might be open-minded, but this was humiliating, and it was a brutal reminder of the night he hit her. Christofferson is by all indications a faithful husband, wrote Cameron Crowe in a Rolling Stone profile. Indications can be deceiving. Rita Coolidge and Chris Christofferson's marriage survived all that, and what followed was a period of collaboration. A series of duets, a more rock and roll George and Tammy. The duo won two Grammys in the mid-70s for From the Bottle to the Bottom and Lover Please. On tour together, Rita played first, followed by a set from Chris, and they closed out the night together with what some called an almost pornographic stage show. The two displayed a deep intimacy on stage, singing more to each other than the audience. But how much of it was real? It's all fantasy anyway, Rita said. Chris was still drinking heavily. It took a bottle to get him on stage. If I'm too fucked up, you can have your money back, he'd amicably shout to audiences as Rita and promoters cringed backstage. It wouldn't be until he saw his own performance in A Star Is Born, playing a washed-up country singer who drinks himself to death, that Chris would decide to go sober. At around the same time, Rita's career blew up. Her album, Anytime, Anywhere, soared up the charts, 
lifted by a cover of Jackie Wilson's 60s hit, Your Love Keeps Lifting Me Higher and Higher. The next time they went out on tour together, Rita was getting top billing, with Chris relegated to the opening solo set. The duets, which closed the show, were still what brought the house down. Offstage, the marriage was coming apart. They were both successful, but in parallel worlds, and Chris's box office wins couldn't entirely offset his resentment that Rita was selling albums while he was not. In 1977, Rita suffered a miscarriage, and the loss of the baby they'd hoped would bring them back together pushed them further apart. Chris was cast in Heaven's Gate, a film that would become notorious as one of the biggest over-budget disasters of its era. Shooting in Montana and Idaho stretched a full year. Co-star John Hurt was able to film all of The Elephant Man during his downtime on the film. And when director Michael Cimino previewed a first cut of the film to studio execs, it was over five hours long. The duration of the shoot led to Rita breaking her prohibition against visiting Chris on set. The hushed tones and sideways glances told her everything she needed to know. She went back to her house in Malibu, gathered up her things, and left. It was a long time in the making, but Chris Christopherson would come to be regarded as one of the giants of country music. His songs of hangovers and heartbreaks are still classics, the kind of thing people who don't even listen to country music think about when they think country. He continued acting and found success in music again as a member of the Highwaymen with his friends Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, and Willie Nelson. Outspokenly political throughout his life, Christopherson opened up a can of verbal whoop-ass on Toby Keith at a birthday show for Willie Nelson when Toby told Chris, none of that lefty shit up there tonight. Have you ever served your country? Chris demanded of the man who was in town to sing about putting America's boot up the ass of anyone who didn't fall in line. The answer is no, you have not, so shut the fuck up. Chris was 67 years old at the time, and Toby Keith slinked away without another word. But this isn't about Chris Christopherson. This is about Rita Coolidge a Tennessee girl who stood five feet from stardom until the spotlight finally fell on her, who hit two hits stolen from her, one by an ex-boyfriend, one by an ex-best friend, who sailed through the worlds of rock, R&B, and country to emerge as a performer entirely her own. This is about a girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Bob Kroll. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahini. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spreaker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.